Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 8, over in the Old Testament. And I want to talk to you about how do you know when God is at work? How do you know you're spiritually healthy? What are the vital signs of of spiritual health? And we're going to look at three of those right out of Nehemiah chapter 8. And let me cut the set the story up for you. Really looking at a story tonight. Takes place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in ruins. For 140 years, the city has been um, devastated. The walls are down, which means it's not safe for families. Raiders can come in. Bandits can come in from all sides. Rob people in the town. It's, it's not a good place. It's a broken city filled with broken people. And the people are just like the walls of the city. And God stirs a man named Nehemiah to leave his home and his job 800 miles away and make that long trip back to Jerusalem and lead the people to rebuild the walls of the city. So you've got Ezra, which comes before Nehemiah, and Ezra is a priest, and he helps the rebuilding of the temple. But it's hard to have a temple to worship in and go to if your walls, at the walls of the city, are down. So Nehemiah comes, leads the people to do what no one thought could be done. Against all odds, the people in 52 days rebuild the walls of the city in in spite of incredible opposition. And so a whole new chapter in the life of God's people begins. And we often need new chapters in our lives, don't we? We often need a new beginning. And we look forward to the time when uh, our marriages can be renewed, our friendships can be renewed, family life can be renewed. Everybody needs a fresh start. And what Nehemiah is going to show us in this chapter is how that takes place when God begins to move among his people. So the walls are built. It's completed. The job is done. 50,000 people move back into the city, according to chapter 7 of Nehemiah. And so the city is once again bustling, and the leaders call a meeting of all of the people. So Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning with verse 1 says, all of the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Now, the water gate is exactly what you think it might be. It's the place where people went to get water. So they would come in from outside of town to get water. they come through the gates that had recently been hung inside the town without spigots and running water like we enjoy and have for years. People had to go to a common place to find water. So it's the busiest intersection in town. 50,000 people gather in that one place. And if you can picture New York City on New Year's Eve and that mass of people waiting for the ball to drop, or if you can picture the Super Bowl and what that crowd looks like, that must have been what it was like as thousands and thousands and thousands of people gather at this one place. But they're not there to see a ball drop or a ball be thrown in, in a ball game. They're here at this place to rediscover who they are as the people of God. They're here to hear a book be read. So verse 1 says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, 
And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, in my mind, I picture this few people scattered throughout the crowd begin to, begin to say, bring the book, bring the book. And then more people in this huge crowd are shouting, bring the book. And soon 50,000 voices are thundering, bring the book, find Ezra, bring the book. And of course, they're talking about the scriptures, the book of, of the law of God. And you can imagine in a crowd like that, there might've been some levity and people began to do the wave. We love Exodus. We love Leviticus. Everybody loves Leviticus. And they just wait. This crowd is alive. They want the book to be read. And I see in this the first sign of God being at work in a church or in an individual's life, and that is hunger. Spiritual hunger. What is it that motivates you to go to the refrigerator after Thanksgiving Day? You're hungry again. Nobody's life changes until they get hungry. Nothing in the world changes for the better until someone gets frustrated and dissatisfied and discontent with the way things are. They're just hungry. What is it that motivates someone to get off the couch, turn off the TV, and go find a job? It's hunger. And one of the signs of spiritual life, one of the signs of life itself is hunger. If people don't start eating, if they stop eating, something's wrong physically with them. And one of the evidences of God moving among his people and moving in a person's life is a hunger to hear from God. Now, if you've, now these people are like us. If you've never seen the Red Sea part and heard the audible voice of God speaking from a mountain that is alive with thunder and lightning, if you've never seen a pillar of fire leading you, how do you hear the word of God? What do you do? And these people understood that God speaks to us, his people. He reveals who he is, what he has done, who we are, what we're meant to do through his written word. And so they're crying out, bring the book because they're hungry at this point. They're beginning a new phase in their life, a new chapter in their city. They need to hear from God. I was thinking that 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2 compares us to hungry newborn babies. I grew up with the King James Version which says, like newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. A little baby enjoys milk, longs for milk, wants more milk because the baby needs to grow and God wants us to grow and he knows to grow we need food as the song that was just sung, we need spiritual food. So the people cry out, bring the book, get Ezra, bring the book, have him read from the book. I think we're familiar with the Word of God. I think we may be too familiar with the Word of God. Obviously, it's the best selling book of all time, most famous book. But we, we live in a time of tremendous biblical illiteracy. There was a survey of Bible knowledge done of a high school in Newton, Massachusetts. They simply asked some basic questions. Here are the answers that these students gave Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers, Jesus was baptized by Moses. The Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. And the epistles were the wives of the apostles. And people even in church say, I'll read the Bible. I don't get anything out of the Bible. And Psalm 119 says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your words. So the Bible itself encourages us to ask God, will you open my eyes, help me to understand your word, and increase whatever it takes, increase my hunger for your word. Now, 
Why did they ask and insist and shout for Ezra to bring the book? It's because they knew the book was different than any other book. They knew the book was a book from God about God. They knew that God spoke the universe into existence and God has chosen to speak to his people through the scriptures and they believed that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That what the Bible says is what God is saying. And the Bible itself testifies to that. Proverbs 20 verse 5, every word of God proves true. Psalm 19, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold pieces. Psalm 20, uh, Job 23, I treasure the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And Hebrews 4.12 says the word is like a sharp sword. It's like a knife. It penetrates, it cuts. Cuts out rebellion, cuts out folly, cuts out sin. And it shapes us to be like Jesus. And you all know 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good word. So we understand God's word equips us for whatever he wants us to do. But I think we become familiar with the Bible. In Nehemiah's day, there was no printing press. That was not until the 15th century. And to get the Bible to hear scripture, you had to show up Find someone like Ezra who has trained himself to read Hebrew and translate it into the language of the people, which is Aramaic. And 50,000 people are so hungry for the word of God, they close down the town, they close the restaurants, they close the shops, they track down Ezra, and they told him, bring the book. Now, you and I have scripture in our own language. We have so many different translations. We have a tremendous uh, privilege So Ezra comes, verse 2 says, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra opens up the scrolls. They didn't have books like we have. He opens up the scroll of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and he reads from God's word for how long? Six hours. Friends, that is preaching. (laughs) I was once told in a church where I was preaching, you have 25 minutes. I said, I'm not sure I can do my introduction in 25 minutes. But he reads for six, for six hours, he stands and reads the word of God. And it says those who were listening were those who could understand, including children. It's amazing how children, what children can pick up and what they can understand. And it says they were attentive, doesn't it? They not only asked for the book, they were attentive to the book. They were, li- they were engaged. They were listening. Nobody's texting. Nobody's got their phone out. They are tracking along with Ezra as he reads. Verse 4 says, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood, and then there's a long list of names, and friends, we don't know how you pronounce these names. Nobody knows how you pronounce these ancient Hebrew names. So I'm going to run through them, do my best. You pronounce them the way you want, because no one knows how ancient Hebrew was, or Aramaic was pronounced at that time. These, here, here are some dudes standing with him on the platform. Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, 
uh, Malkijah, Hashum. There's another guy there. Uh, <laughs> Zechariah and Meshulam on his, his left hand. He said, who are these people? These are the Sunday school teachers. These are the deacons. These are the, the elders. These are the spiritual leaders. These are the ministry team uh, directors. Uh, these are people who serve with him um, in, in serving the people of God. And so verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above all the people, and he opened it. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And we need to talk about this for a moment. They're standing for six hours, and Ezra is on a platform that has been constructed for him, and he is above the people. You say, why was he above the people? Well, they didn't have sound systems in those days, so in order that 50,000 people might hear him, perhaps that's the reason. But I think there is more than that. His job is to open the book. And where should the book be? Above the people. It is a visible picture of the authority of God's word. It's a visible way of saying scripture is the highest authority here. And if we did nothing tonight but settle this issue in all of our minds, I think it would have been worth our time uh, to be here. There are two positions that you can take on scripture. One is this. I stand on scripture. I judge scripture. I criticize scripture. I don't like what this says. I think it should be this way. I think... God spoke in one time in one place, but it's outdated. I don't think we need to listen to everything he says. And so I stand on scripture. I'm the authority over scripture. I met day before yesterday with a young couple I'm doing premarital counseling with. And um, I read to them from, from the scripture. They're doing a little study on what the Bible teaches about marriage, about husbands and wives, how husbands and wives relate to one another. And the young lady who's going to be married says, I don't agree with that at all. In fact, I don't like that. And I said, well, you went to a Christian school. You're a Christian. That's correct. How do you understand then what the Bible says about how men and women relate in marriage and how they honored one another and what God, the roles that God assigns men and women? And she said, well, I just think that's outdated. I don't like that. You can take the position of standing over Scripture, standing on Scripture, let it be below you, or you can be like this where scripture is above me. Scripture judges me. Scripture speaks to me. And I stand below its authority. I think Ezra stood on that high platform as a visible way of saying, this is the authority in our life. And there's so much confusion about this because in our country at this time, there is so much confusion about authority itself, isn't there? Authorities disagree with one another. How many of you, just a little... A survey here. How many of you have ever had two doctors disagree? You, you, what do you do? How do you know what's right? Lawyers disagree. Business people disagree. Politicians disagree. And the question is, who is right? And for Christian people, we say this is right. This is true. This is the authority. This is what this means then. Our culture is not the authority. You ever heard someone say, well, everybody's doing it. Time magazine morality, take a poll and whatever people think is right, whatever the most people agree with, that's what we'll go with. That's culture being the authority. It means tradition is not our authority. We've always done it this way. There's an old preacher story, I'm sure David has shared this, about a young couple and she's preparing a 
Thanksgiving Day meal and she's got a ham and she cuts both ends off the ham. You heard the story? She cuts both ends off the ham and, and um, it, it, the pan is large enough and her husband says, why do you cut the ends off the ham? It's, it's good. And she said, well, my mother always cut the ends off the ham. Well, call your mom and find out what she did it. They called her mom and her mom said, well, I cut the ends off the ham when I cook it, cook it because my mother cut the ends off the ham. And they called grandmother and said, Grandma, why did you cut the ends off the ham? And she says, because I didn't have a pan big enough for the ham. <laughs> so to say God's word is our authority means tradition is not our authority. And let me be clear, tradition is not the problem. Anytime you do something two times the same way, you have a tradition. We started a church um, that where, where I serve now, and the second Sunday we already had traditions. We were doing things the same. Tradition is not the problem. Traditionalism is the problem. Where we do something without thinking and we make it the authority in our lives. In Mark 7, 8, Jesus says, you have replaced the commands of God with traditions of man. And a lot of people do that. To say the Bible is our authority means human reason is not our authority. Well, I've always thought it seems logical to me and yet scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. Personal feelings are not the authority in our lives. I guess this is the most common thing. It's just how I feel. Remember Debbie Boone's song from years ago? How can it be wrong when it feels so right? And the Bible itself tells the story of the dark ages of Israel in the book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. For Christians, this is the authority. Not what I feel, not what I think, not what everybody is doing, not what does grandma think, not what does Fox News say. I just ask the question, well, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible speak uh, to this? And you say, well, I have a hard time understanding the Bible. And even Peter says, well, there are things that Paul wrote that are a little bit difficult to understand. Mark Twain said one time, he said, it's not the things I don't understand about the Bible that bother me, it's the things I do understand. Early in the ministry of Billy Graham, he had so many doubts about the Bible. He had two running buddies of his um, who went to um, higher education and began to have doubts raised about the Bible. Billy Graham says one day he went out into the woods, took his Bible, put it on a log, and prayed this prayer. God, I don't understand all this book. There are many difficult passages, and I have doubts, but you say it's your word, so by faith I'm going to accept it as my authority and preach it and live it, and he got it from there. It was a turning point in his life. He simply established, this is above me. And here's the good news. The same Holy Spirit who inspired God's word illumines our minds and gives us understanding if we come with humility, prayerfully asking him to teach us. So, do you want to hear from God? Open the book. Ezra opens the book. Do you open the book? Do you open the book apart from Sunday? You open the book during the week? When's the last time you open the book? So you have a friend who's struggling, and you say, you know what? There is a book that speaks to you about your struggle. You have a friend whose marriage is a wreck, and you say, you know, there's something in the, this book that speaks to that, Ephesians chapter 5. Well, I don't know about, I had a young lady in, our, in a church where I served, she came, after a service, she came up and he said, I, she said, I just don't believe Jesus was God. I can't understand that. I can't, I can't believe that. Her name was Julie. 
What do you say when a young woman comes to you and she's been attending your church and says, I just cannot believe Jesus is God. I, I can't believe that. What do you say? I said, Julie, I want to encourage you to do something. Take the book of John. Go read it. Read one chapter a day. And when you get finished, come back and tell me what you think. Ten days later, Julie calls me on the phone and said, he's God. <laughs> he's, it's clear. He, he's God. It was the word of God. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through the word of God that convinced her about that. So he says, open the book. And when Ezra opened the book, the people stood. Why? Why did they stand as God's word was being read? Well, why do gentlemen in the South stand when women walk into the room? It's respect, isn't it? It's simple respect. And we live in a very disrespectful culture. Parents, leaders, government officials, police officers, disrespected. Husbands and wives disrespect one another. And God is often not respected by people who call themselves Christians. And I don't want to be legalistic, but I think sometimes we disrespect God's word. I was in a friend's home, a Muslim, and we were talking about the Quran. And he said, just a moment. And he went to a closet and he pulled down a, a, a packet and unwrapped this beautiful cloth. And he had a copy of the Quran there. And he read to me something out of the Quran, and he wrapped it back up. And I said, it's obvious you respect your book. And he said, you never put the Quran on the floor. You never put anything on the Quran. And I thought to myself, here's a man who respects a book written by, written by a simple man, which is leading millions of people to hell. And he respects his book more than I respect my book. And I think sometimes we disrespect God and we disrespect his word. So the people stood, Bible's preached, people are receptive, they're attentive, they're hungry to hear the word of God. And look at verse six, Ezra blessed the Lord, the, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces uh, to the ground. Is it okay to bless the Lord? Is it okay to say Amen. I thank you for that. Is it okay to raise your hands in praise? I'll be honest with you. There was a time a few years ago when I had to stand before our church and I had to confess that I was more afraid of what they thought than of what God thought in my life. And I said, friends, the Bible says, Psalm 134, 2, lift your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. And 1 Timothy 2 says, I want every man, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without angering or disputing. And I said, friends, I just have to confess to you, I have feared you and what you thought more than I fear God. So I'll be raising my hands in worship. And sometimes we're afraid to... We're afraid to let our posture reflect the attitude of our heart because people will think we're weird. So what we're, what we're lacking in worship is we're just cool. And we're sophisticated. And we're uh, aloof. And we're passionless. And we may need to repent of that. Then it says they bowed their faces to the ground. They're not just listening passively. Their posture is reflecting what is in their heart. And they, you can just picture this scene, 50,000 people like a wave bowing their face to the ground and saying, you are God, you made the heavens and the earth. 
You made all things to worship you, and we have pursued idols. We've worshiped things you made. We repent. We're broken. We're contrite. And look forward to the day when Messiah comes and raises us up from the earth forever to be with you. And they're bowed their face to the ground. Now look at verse 7. There's another list of people who helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly they gave the sense so the people understood Uh, They're reading. So they break this crowd up of 50,000 people. They break them up in small groups, Sunday school classes, small groups. And these men who are on the stage with Nehemiah and with Ezra scatter throughout the crowd, and they help the people to understand what's being read. And maybe Ezra read from Genesis about the curse and the promise that the seed of the woman would someday crush the head of the serpent. And so the Levites, these men are walking their way through the crowd, helping people to understand what it meant, how the curse of Genesis 3 explains why the world is like it is and why people act like they act, why the world isn't right. And that someday a baby will be born who will put an end to the curse. Maybe Ezra read to them about the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages. And that group of men worked their way through the crowd and said, do you understand why so many people, different people, speak different languages and where this came from? And maybe Ezra read about the promise of Abraham. You will have a great name. You will be a great man. You will have a great family and a promise that through your descendants, all the earth will be blessed. And they heard about Abraham's family, how they became a nation in captivity and slavery, and how God sent a deliverer, raised up a savior for them, and how they must have groaned when Ezra read about their nation's disobedience in the wilderness. And they heard how God spoke through Moses in Deuteronomy and promised people blessing if they would obey and said God would curse them if they disobeyed. And they understood their forefathers had walked away from God. And verse 9 says they began to cry. And that dirt under their face became mud as their tears fell. As they realized they were a broken, sinful, rebellious people just like their ancestors have been. Sometimes when God's word is read, And when it's preached, people feel nothing. There's a hardness about them. Not on this day. Not these people. As they took in all that God had done for them, all the promises he had made, all that he had commanded them to do, all the patience that he had shown, it just moved them to tears. It it penetrated to their heart. 50,000 faces on the ground sobbing. They understood the failures of God's people all over the centuries to be what God intended them uh, to be. God's word is not always easy to hear, is it? It confronts us. It disrobes us. It exposes us. It strips away our thinking and our illusions. It corrects us. It disturbs us. Shows us how far we've fallen when we come face to face with God's voice in his word. Well, there's going to be a time in this book for repentance, but this is not that time. So look at verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. 
Do not mourn or weep, for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, which is the biblical permission for barbecue. Right? All the men say, Amen. Yeah. Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When they gathered that day and they heard about the disobedience of their, their families, their, the failures, that was not all that was to be heard. They heard that God had made a way for sin to be forgiven. God had made a way for people to be restored once again. Maybe they heard from Genesis where God provided a substitute ram that got caught in the bushes and Abraham did not have to sacrifice his, his beloved son. Maybe when Ezra got to Exodus, they learned that God made provision for a lamb that would be sacrificed for every family on Passover night in place of the firstborn. Maybe Ezra got to Leviticus and he talked about and read about the Day of Atonement where God has instructions for a single animal to be sacrificed for the sins of all of the people. And over and over they just heard Ezra not only speaking of what, how their failures had been, but how God had made a way for people to be right with him on the basis of a lamb that God provided. And they didn't understand the lamb of God that was to come to take away the sin of the world. But they understood this. God's word not only reveals our sin, God's word reveals our Savior. It opens a way for us to him that our sin will not have the final word in our lives. God's word reveals that his grace and mercy get the final word. And we don't have to live with this in this pool of regret and shame. That there is a way to joy when you know that God extends grace to sinners who run to him. So they say, it's time to turn from tears to music and barbecue and people enjoying one another because it says they understood the words. They understood God is for you. What are the vital signs of spiritual health? What are the evidences that God is moving among a people? One is hunger. A second is joy. Sheer joy. The joy of the Lord makes you strong. And the only way to have joy, says Ezra, is to open the book. Maybe they heard about how God provided manna and water in the wilderness. And they learned about the great feast and the festivals in Leviticus and began to understand that God was inviting them to come back to him, welcoming them back into fellowship uh, with him. So let me just say a word of application. Week after week, folks, as you gather here for worship and you sing God's word and you hear God's word read and preached and you pray God's word and you understand it, it's right to feel the weight of sin. It's right to feel the failure to, to be all that God intended you to be. But God never intends we be sent away with sorrow. Instead, we're invited to understand that grace means God knows every stupid thing we're going to do and loves us anyway. Grace means we are, we are worse than we think we are. And we are more loved than we ever imagined. But they're both true. Look at verse 13. It says, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of God. So the, 
Life is beginning again, and they need the men in the families. These families need to be rebuilt as well as these walls. So the men gathered together to hear God's word, and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths or um, like uh, brush arbors um, during the feast of the seventh month, and they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out on the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. So there's the third evidence of God moving in among a people, of God stirring up something in a person's heart. First is hunger, second is joy, third is obedience. It's doing what God said. How many times have you read, how many times have you been in church and heard someone preach or you've read something in scripture and you thought, I need to do that? And it goes right out of your mind and you walk out the door and you're a lot more concerned about where you're going to eat and what you're going to eat for lunch than what God has said. Well, what happened in Jerusalem that day was completely different. They read about this forgotten festival, this forgotten feast of tabernacles, and they went out and immediately made these huts for themselves, and they lived in them for seven days. And you think that made them miserable to move out of their homes, comfortable homes that they were building for themselves, and to move in these makeshift shelters? Did it make them miserable? Look at verse 17. All the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Have you discovered the joy of the Lord? Have you discovered that saying yes to God's commands and God's word brings you greater joy than whatever it, tempts, whatever it is that tempts you to ignore or defy what God's commanded? That's how it was for the people that day. That day, when they heard about God's presence among his people in the past, they felt joy. And they built these huts to picture forward the day when the word would be made flesh and would tabernacle or live among us. And I'll just wrap this up. There is coming a day, friends, when we will experience all that they celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles on the Jewish calendar. We will live in our forever home where we will enjoy the presence of God in our midst. And we'll remember how he rescued us from slavery. We will tell stories to one another of how God moved in on our behalf, took us out of the wilderness of this world into the safety and security of our eternal home, and there will be great rejoicing on that day. All this happened at the Watergate. Does that ring a bell? It happened at the Watergate. Nehemiah had set up guards at these gates when they built the walls and hung the gates. He put guards there. And God stands guard over our lives. And Jesus not only guards us, he said, I am the gate. I am the door. He's the way we get in. And oh, the safety we enjoy as Christians. 
He says about those who come to him, I'll give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The joy of knowing we are safe in the hands of God who loves us deeply. We don't have to live in fear of some natural disaster, fear of terminal, terminal diagnosis, the fear of aging just brings joy. And that one day we will be welcomed in the new Jerusalem, which is surrounded by a high wall with 12 gates. In Nehemiah's day, those gates were closed on the Sabbath. The gates of the new Jerusalem are never closed. Don't you long for that day when we will enter into the complete security of the Lord's city? And on that day, not 50,000 people will gather but a multitude no one can number from every tribe and language and tongue. And they will cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we will still gather in the new Jerusalem. We will still gather to hear God's word, but not from Ezra. We will hear God's word from the mouth of Jesus himself. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So I'll close with this. When it says the joy of the Lord is your strength, what Lord are you talking about? You're talking about Jesus. It's Jesus that gives the joy. It's Jesus that gives the strength to be a good parent, a good partner, a good friend. You go to Jesus, he is the one who gives assurance of forgiveness and gives the joy and the strength to be a blessing to, to others. What is the Bible about? My assignment tonight was to preach about the ministry of the, of the word of God and God's people. What is the Bible about? Say it with me, one word, one name. The name above all names, say the name. Jesus. It's about Jesus. Jesus himself said, you think you find eternal life in the scriptures, they're about me. And after the resurrection, walking on the road to Emmaus, he explained even the book of Nehemiah and that event in Nehemiah chapter eight, that is about me. It's all about me, all the Bible. And if you open the Bible and you don't get to Jesus, you don't get to joy. Because he is the source of joy. When you read the Bible, no matter what part you read, ask, where is Jesus in this? What does this tell me about Jesus? Because every page sings his name. Every page shouts his story. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901 872 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.